I invite you to take a Bible now and to open it to Psalm 17. We'll read Psalm 17 in its entirety. It says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity, and their mouths they, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. The first thing we see in this psalm is it opens uh, expressing the cry of the innocent. David is uh, standing before the Lord and what can come across is fairly boldly to us claiming his innocence before God and crying out, wondering why it is that he's going through what he's going through. And it reveals, as we read this then, that it is possible to go through really hard times without any direct cause on our part or sin that we may have committed. David is going through something really difficult. He feels surrounded by enemies and people who want to do him harm. But even though that's his circumstance, uh, he opens in, in his cry to God to plead and say, God, I'm, I'm innocent. Three different times in verse 1, he's asking God to listen, hear a just cause, attend to my cry, and give ear to my prayer. He's saying, listen, like, listen, really listen to me, God. And then two references he makes to looking from uh, your presence. Let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So he's inviting God to listen in really closely and to look, to behold. He's not wanting anything to be hidden from God. He's inviting this level of inspection on the part of God and saying, I, 
I'm, I'm innocent of what, whatever it is he's being accused of or why ever, uh, whatever the cause is that the enemy is coming after him. And so he's praying, he's crying out. He has a cause that he wants to bring before God. And it's a good reminder as we read that, that it is a truth of our world that we can go through all kinds of hardship and difficulty that does not have a direct cause rooted in our sinfulness or something that we've done wrong. Because that's often where our mind and our sense of guilt will go. If we're going through something, what did we do to cause this? What are we being punished for? And even if we say we believe in God's grace, many of us live out most of our days as if we believed in karma, that good things happen to good people, and if bad things happen to us, then we must have done bad things. And here David is resisting that. He's saying, I know I'm going through something really bad and something really difficult, but I didn't do something to deserve this. And many of us need to remember that, that if we've received a certain uh, medical diagnosis, if we're going through a hardship at work, if relationships are difficult for us, in so many of those things, certainly there are times where we might have contributed to that hardship. But just as many times, what it reveals is not that there's something wrong with us, but there's something wrong with this world, that this world is broken. And so many times there is injustice. There is suffering that happens on the part of those who are innocent. And we have profound biblical examples of this. In the Old Testament, Job is sort of uh, the, the, the best example of someone who is otherwise innocent by all accounts, not perfect, but who did nothing to invite or deserve the suffering that he went through. And in the New Testament, we see that magnified most in the life of Jesus himself. He was innocent of any sin, of any wrongdoing. And so in a, in a world where uh, only bad happens to bad people and only good happens to good people, Jesus should have had the most comfortable life of anybody who ever lived, should have received the most amount of praise and accolade, the most amount of offerings of wealth and resources. But even though he was innocent and perfect, he suffered, and ultimately he suffered to the point of death. And so what that reveals to us is not something wrong about Job or later something wrong about Jesus, but something true about our world, that Scripture tells us that we live in a fallen world, that we're no longer in, in the simplicity of the paradise of the Garden of Eden, but we live in a dangerous world, in a violent world, in an unjust world. And so there will be many times that even though we follow God, we will cry out and ask him for help, ask him for deliverance, ask him to look. And not only does, uh, do sometimes does it happen even though we haven't done something wrong, sometimes we actually suffer because we do something right. Uh, this, uh, David is, uh, this is most likely being written earlier in his life when what he's dealing with significantly is the jealousy of Saul, where David did not campaign to be the next king, didn't present himself as somebody who should be the king, but he was anointed by Samuel, selected by God to be the next king. And rather than Saul then being excited about the fact that now there's a transition plan in leadership, Saul grows jealous of him. And so not only did David 
you know, avoid doing anything wrong, but what Saul got really mad about it is David started becoming really popular. David started showing his military skill. David could play music in ways that other people couldn't. There were these good things that David was doing that caused Saul to be all the more jealous of him. And so there are times where suffering comes, not only when we're innocent, but actually we have done the right thing. We have stood up in the right way. And many of you will experience that at different points in time, whether you're in school or at work, where it's because you're starting to stand out or because you're particularly good at something that all of a sudden what's pretty easy for other people to do is just to say bad things about you, to accuse you of all kinds of wrongdoing. And not because you've done anything wrong, actually it's precisely because you're doing it well and you're doing it in ways that they wish they could do it. And because they don't want you to get promoted or they don't want you to have the friendships they wish they had, then all of a sudden uh, false accusations are made against you. And I, I wish I could say this was significantly different in a Christian context, but sadly it's not oftentimes. I regularly hear people who will say things to me that are bad or negative or critical about other pastors or churches because they just assume that uh, there's a sense of jealousy or competition rather than saying, you know, th there's no animosity here. <laughs> God has a beautiful body throughout this world and every tribe, tongue, and language. And within all those languages, there are many people who are following them. And we might have different ways of doing things. But we don't have to shoot anybody down. What oftentimes just flows out of pure jealousy that then attacks people's character or the way they do things because they're frustrated at how successful they are at what they do. Now, there's plenty of times where things can look really good on the outside, and we have to examine and ask if they're also good on the inside, and that's legitimate. But there is something in our own human nature that also just wants to tear things down <laughs> and tear people down. So whether it's in a work context excelling, whether it's even in a church context, uh, we, we know this increasingly even in our own political culture and environment. Some of you know this from experience. If you were to raise your hand and say, I think I'm going to run for the local school board, or I think I'm going to run for this position, or I think I'm going to run, almost anybody would tell you, oh my goodness, if you do that, you are going to be attacked like in ways you've never been attacked before. You will hear things said about you you didn't know people would think about you. And it causes many people to say, well, okay, well, then I'd rather not do that. <laughs> when for most people, it's not an attempt to do something wrong. It's an attempt to do something good. It's an attempt to say, I want to be more involved. I'm invested here, and so I want to participate. But oftentimes, the cost of participation means many times when you're innocent... Uh, not perfect, but mostly innocent, mostly desiring to do uh, good, you'll be accused of all kinds of things. And here, David is revealing that, and it's important for us uh, to remember that. Because if we start believing the accusations against us or uh, the opposition to our work, it'll cause us to despair and to give up. But if we can, like David, cry out and say, no, I don't think I'm going through this because I did something terrible. I believe I'm innocent. It can cause us to persevere in spite of the opposition that we might be receiving. And so that's the next thing we see. We see the cry of David claiming his innocence, and then we see his resolve. 
the resolve of the righteous. He says in verse 3, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. David knows this. He can, he can sort of handle the pressure from outside and from his enemies because he's, he's also been under the fire, the testing, the purifying pressure from his heavenly father who loves him. And because he's been able to endure, endure that, because he's been able to come out on the other side of that, that he can stand strong. And so he doesn't know exactly how it's going to end or go with all of the present opposition he's dealing with, probably from Saul and other people. But because he's gone through the trials that the Lord has allowed in his life and seen that God has brought him through and persevered him in those things, <clears throat> uh, there's this strength in this psalm. There's this resolve on his part to invite further inspection. God, you have tried me. You have tested me. You've shown up in the night. Like when the things that are happening that most people don't see, God, you know those things about me. You know everything about me. And so keep on looking. Keep on listening. Examine my life. Examine my ways. And David knows that if God does that, what it often does is it continues to strengthen him and build him up to give him a resolve for the future. And we need to have that kind of resolve that doesn't come from arrogance or confidence in ourselves, but comes from the lived experience of being tested and tried by God himself. And to know that whenever he does that, he does that for our good. He does it to make us better than we were before. And so even if we weren't guilty of something, even if it wasn't in response to some specific sin, the God who loves us and cares about us and want to see us keep maturing and growing will allow times of testing to come in our way, times of trials, so that we become stronger and stronger. And then David also begins to say out loud the truths about God that he knows. And he reminds himself of God's great love when he says in verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love O Savior of those who seek refuge in me, keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. David is saying out loud the good things that he knows about God and about his relationship with him as a way of reminding his own heart that it is okay to cry out to him and there's a reason to stand strong and to have resolve because God really does love him this way. And so here we see the adoration of the redeemed. David knows that he's, everything he's coming to God for and everything he's asking him for is exactly what God would want him to ask of him. He's not trying to talk God into doing something he thinks God is not interested in or doesn't want to do. He knows enough of God's character to say, God, you are righteous, so you care about what's right. You are just, so you care about justice. You are good, and so you care about goodness. And so he knows he's bringing to God the very request that God invites him to bring. And we need to do that ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of his love, to ask him to show it in greater and greater measure that if he's the one who saved us, how is he not also the one who wants to provide refuge for us? We, we, we should be wanting to ask those things. 
um, an example of it recently, not this past week that had more inclement weather, uh, but the week before when it was uh, warm and, and dry every single day was an opportunity for our kids just to get a lot more outside time. And uh, there are several people who've moved into our neighborhood over the winter that we hadn't met yet because it's just freezing cold. And so everybody was stuck inside their house. And now being outside, more people were out and about and there was more chances to now meet new people. And so our kids uh, met a, a family two doors down that had kids similar age and they're all playing together. And they were playing together, having so much fun, but it was hot enough and they were in the sun that I was like, they're all gonna wear out. And so I went over and asked the, the mom and dad of the other house and I said, is it okay if I offer popsicles uh, to the kids um, since they've been playing so good and they're probably gonna play longer? And they're like, sure, you can. And so I offered uh, two different kinds of popsicles to the kids and they were all happy but the one son was a little torn between which flavor. Should I go with tangerine or strawberry? And I was like, well, just know, like this isn't like a one-time thing. Like you can pick one thing now, and I usually have a pretty good stash in my freezer. And so you can ask me again if you want, you know, to try the other one another time. So he landed on strawberry. And I think everybody else picked tangerine. But they had it, and then the next opportunity that there was a, a time to play, he remembered what I said that I invited him to ask me because it wasn't a one-time thing. I try to keep a good stash in the freezer. And so he asked, and I was like, yes, I do. Do you want it now? Like, I'll go get it. And then for Amy, we had a conversation because we are trying to tell our kids to not go around asking other people for food. And so it was that tension of like, wait a minute, are we encouraging something for somebody to do that we're discouraging our kids to do? And it's like, I know, I know, but I have a reputation to defend. I told him that he could come and ask this, and so I'm going to go and get that. And so I did uh, get it for him. But in that way, there was, a, there was no sense of burden on my part when he came to ask the very thing I told him to ask me for. And if we believe about God that he is loving, he's filled with loving kindness, he's filled with goodness, that he thinks of you and me as the apple of his eye, that he wants to shelter us under the shadow of his wing, then there's no prayer request you or I could bring to him that he isn't already eager and ready to answer for us on our behalf. I invite you to come with me to Romans chapter 8 to see this uh, unpacked by the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 31. Paul has been reflecting on the salvation that God has provided, the goodness that he's already revealed by being the Savior of his people. And so God takes that, or Paul takes that and reflects on how that should encourage us going forward. So Romans 8, verse 31, he's just talked about how God has saved us, and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it's written, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So when we're going through tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, all of those realities still might happen to us or happen to people that we love. In all of those things, Paul is joining in with David to say, don't forget that God's love is steadfast and unconditional for us. Don't doubt that you can ever come to him in prayer and ask him to protect you and ask him to redeem your situation. That, that, that you'll ever bother him or burden him to ask him to plead your cause. Because when we have that perspective on him, it's a perspective that brings a sense of adoration and worship, that he really loves us in this way, that we can always come to him. And that gives us the strength to also do what David uh, then proceeds to do, which is to stand against the ungodly. So right after, David reminds himself and, of who God is and asks God to show his wondrous love. He also asks God to bring about judgment upon sin and sinners and vindication of those who are innocent. This is part of the Psalms that uh, many of us are probably uncomfortable with where we might take a certain verse about us being the apple of his eye and feel like that's something we could put up on a wall, but when the psalmist is asking God to bring judgment, uh, we're less inclined to sort of think of that as an inspirational verse to memorize. But it's the same God who does both. It is the same God who in his goodness brings judgment upon wickedness. And so David is saying, these people who are so set on doing violence and so set on doing wickedness, God, would you stop them? Would you, in providing a shelter in your wings over us, prevent them from doing what they're set on doing? And that's an appropriate prayer for us. God, would you please stop those who are so set on sinning that they're going to do harm and violence towards other people? Would you stop those who are thinking about sinning and walking away from their promises and their relationship? Would you stop those from sinning who are about to risk the financial future of their home or their companies because of greed or whatever it is? God, would you stop that from happening? It's, it's our love of him and our love of other people that would cause us to stand against the ungodly. This is Kathy Keller writing on Psalm 17. She says, The callous people who cross any line and flout every law, laugh at compassion, and do whatever it takes to be happy right now are indeed those we need to fear in this life. Living a self-absorbed life will always be at the cost of everyone else. In such a dark world, David, though, maintains hope. He remembers in verse 14 that cruelty will always come home to roost. But in verse 15 goes beyond that, reminding us that someday we will see the Lord as he is, to gaze into infinite beauty and to receive such infinite love that will give us satisfaction that will last forever. We can pray all of these things 
in the same prayer. God, help us not to live such self-absorbed lives that we cause damage to other people and help those who are so bent on living in such self-absorbed ways to not cause damage to others. And it's part of our call as his children to resist that, that the very protection we're asking him to provide for us, we provide to other people. The very justice that we're asking him to provide for us, that we would advocate for justice for others who are hurting. And it's appropriate that we pray that way. And then this psalm ends with um, the promise of the hopeful. At the very, very end in verse 15, uh, David says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. <clears throat> in some ways, it feels like a, an extra verse. He's already said who God is. He's already invited God's presence uh, to view everything that he's doing. He's already reminded himself of God's goodness. But he knows it's also still important for himself to make a promise. The language is, is of a vow, a commitment. Uh, we can think of uh, earlier in Joshua's day, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here David is saying, with everything I've just said, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. There is a need for us regularly to reaffirm our commitment to our Savior and to his ways. When all of the challenges do come our way, say, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to return uh, the treatment that I'm fearing to those very people. That's why David, part of David's prayer is, God, I want the wicked to fall by your sword and by your hand. I don't want to do to them what they're trying to do to me. I want you to bring about judgment and vindication because I believe you can control your anger in ways that I can't. You can purify your judgment in ways that I can't. And in offering that up as a prayer, then there's a, a commitment on his part, a promise that he makes to trust in God, to trust that God will do all things well. We need to do that as it relates to following Christ uh, and becoming a Christian. Uh, I heard one author put it this way. Sometimes we might look back in our lives and if we say, did I make a decision to follow Jesus? And we might think back on a time when we were moved by a song or moved by a gathering and it feels like we wrote something in pencil. Uh, it's never wrong to take something that you think you wrote in pencil and write it in pen. If the memory is beginning to fade and you're wondering, did you really mean it? Was it really sure? Did you really understand it? Well, just resolve again to give your heart to him. Surrender to him with no sense of shame or embarrassment. Or we often find that when we, we say we're going to follow God, uh, when we sing that song, we could usually probably more often and accurately say, some to Jesus I surrender, <laughs> or most to Jesus I surrender. But again, feel a conviction that what we really need to say is all to Jesus I surrender. And at different points, we come to places of conviction where we say, I'm not sure it's been all. It's been a lot more of some, or it's been most, and I want it to be all. Well, then say it again. Sing it again. Write it down like David did. Invite other people to commit just like you are. Text a friend. Talk to somebody. 
and say, I want to make a decision today to do it differently or to do it better or to hold on to what I've always known to be right, but man, I'm just tempted a thousand times to walk away, and I don't want to. You could do that, just like David did today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power to convict us, written so long ago in circumstances that are so different than our own, but so powerful to the realities and the temptations that each and every one of us face. We do believe that you know our hearts and our minds better than anyone, that you already see what is in them, you see into the night, you see all the things that nobody else can, and we, we pray that you would wondrously show your steadfast love. We pray that you would keep us as the apple of your eye, that you would shelter us under the, the protection of your wings. And we pray that you would help us to, to commit ourselves to you, uh, to give you the whole of our hearts and the whole of our lives, uh, trusting that your ways are good and kind, and that what matters most is to one day behold your face, to be vindicated and ultimately judged uh, faithful in your eyes more than anyone else's. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.